actual observed effect is that the negative effect on resistance training outcomes scales with the volume, the frequency, and the volume and the frequency of the cardio done, right? So if you were doing one hard run a week, that's probably not gonna do much, you know? Um, if you were doing three hard ones, one, runs a week, that's probably gonna do more, you know? Which is a very simple concept, but it's worth pointing out. And again, also, as I mentioned at the start, that effect is not how much gains you lose, but it is the attenuation or the slowing down of the gains you're getting. So if let's say you're getting 100% of gains doing you know, only one or two cardio sessions a week, you go to your third, it might be now you're getting 95% of your gains. You might not even notice the difference. Um, and that's not a real number, but the point is, is that uh, it only becomes a problem to where you're worrying about pure maintenance of tissue or mitigating the loss when you're really emphasizing uh, the cardio side of it. And you can actually get away with a fair bit, uh, especially if you distribute it right. And that's where kind of the data after that 2011 meta-analysis come in. Kia ora friends, welcome back. This is the Vegan Body Coach Podcast. And the voice you heard was Dr. Eric Helms who is on for a repeat. If you haven't checked out episode 13, all about protein and amino acids and you know how much we need on a vegan diet and what's the best ways to get them, what's the most optimal way to build muscle mass, check out episode 13. It is an absolute winner. For new listeners, my name is Jackson Burden. I am the host of the Vegan Body Coach podcast. I'm a gym owner here in Auckland, New Zealand, personal trainer, and online coach for vegans, vegetarians, and reducitarians. This is a place you can come for evidence-based information as I interview experts in the fields on a whole range of topics, topics from optimizing protein intake, designing a well-planned vegan diet, supplements, and how to maximize muscle growth. Today I have Eric Helms back for a really interesting discussion which I know you guys are going to love if you're into training. Something I've been dabbling in more lately is uh, switching out my training styles and my training modalities. I've spent many years following more bodybuilding style training which is my absolute love, more hypertrophy style but this year I've got some different goals on the agenda. So while I'm pretty sure that we're all aware that doing too many things at once leads to diminishing returns. This doesn't seem to stop many of us, including myself, from trying to maximize muscle and strength while also dabbling in a medley of other sporting and physical exercise modalities. The reality is everything has a trade-off, right? And we can't expect to optimize all of these things at the same time. So I wanted to bring Eric back on for round two to discuss just how much effect activities like football or hiking running or other high intensity training activities such as circuit training or crossfit have on our potential growth uh, of muscle and and strength so i know personally and from speaking with hundreds of gym members over the years uh, and clients that the large majority of us we want muscle gain and we want to get strong and build a solid physique but unlike competitive bodybuilders or powerlifters, we're not really concerned about minimizing other activities that may interfere with that muscle and strength gain. Should we actually be more careful if muscle gain is the goal, is the best method just to train, sleep, repeat, and you know sacrifice other activities that we actually really enjoy, you know, like hiking or, or like football? 
uh, because we fear reduced gains. So specifically in this episode, we dive deep into what the interference effect is, how much volume is actually needed to progress or at least maintain and strength and physique while doing concurrent training, how to structure a week of training um, to mitigate muscle loss and decreases in performance if we're dabbling in other training modalities, how to assess if you're actually doing too much, uh, and rep ranges, intensities, calorie intake, and a whole bunch more. We also jump into a little bit of Eric's own journey competing in powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman all in a single 12-month period. So guys, it's going to be an absolute ripper. We're going to dive straight in, strap in, grab a protein shake, and let's get into concurrent training and its effects on muscle and strength with Dr. Eric Helms. You are listening to the Vegan Body Coach Podcast, all about optimizing your strength, fitness, and physique through a plant-focused diet. My name is Jackson Burton, and I'm a nutrition and training coach for vegans, the plant-centric, and plant-curious. I'm sitting down with athletes, experts, and influencers around the world to inspire you to create your best vegan body yet. Okay, so Eric, well, welcome back. Second time on the podcast pleasure thanks for having me back yeah i um i i guess this topic here and the listeners already know what we're talking about but it's um it's something that i discuss a lot with with members within the gym here and then just with like other people whether they're commenting on instagram or just in general people in the fitness industry um i think there's far fewer people than we think that are actually just in in it for like physical out like physique outcomes like bodybuilding specific training i think there's a lot of young guys who are like into that but then i think like general population it's more like yeah i want to get the results from lifting weights strength training um but i actually want to do other things as well mm. i want to be able to go on a hike on the weekends i want to be able to run a half marathon or maybe i play soccer or i'm into bjj and all these different things like that may affect our training within the gym and I really liked some of the thoughts you guys have been putting forward in the Iron Culture podcast mm. around um, the idea of like physical culture. Yeah. And I think what you guys termed or what they termed in the early 20th century being a physical culturist, is that is that correct is how they yep. would term it? Absolutely. Cool. And I kind of like the idea of that when I when I heard you guys speaking about it in the sense that like they were, they were you know, purely training i guess for like strength outcomes performances and things like this but there was a physical like a physique element to it and then like athleticism elements as well it wasn't just like one or the other yep. so this is kind of like do all and be be decent at all of these things and i think it's something that almost you've um used within your own training over the last couple of years as well is training for like multiple different events in like the one year so how do you relate to this kind of idea of physical culture and how have you sort of seen that develop into your own training into what you sort of did i think it was last year or the year before where you mm. sort of tried to compete in these different modalities yeah yeah man i um it's an interesting thing if you take a historical perspective and we kind of look at where we are today in kind of the contemporary fitness space and then where this all began at least in uh, we'll say European, Western European countries, um, Australia, New Zealand, US, UK, uh, the culture we're most, most familiar with. 
it was you know basically the the late 1800s um, where this started the whole lifting weights thing and it wasn't even like hey back then they thought you could do two things at the same time it was more like there was no conception that they were separate right so yeah. the the philosophy was that um, form followed function and vice versa mm. so bodybuilding at the time physique competitions were quite literally uh, the visual form component of function. It's showing the fact that you are strong by showing the muscles that do that work. Um, and, you know, to whatever physiological distinction there is between strength and hypertrophy, it's kind of irrelevant back then because it was so far before that was even something that people were conceptualizing. Um, so, you know, just for a little more historical context, there wasn't no one was talking about training for strength or size. That was more something that came out of the 1900s um, and not even the early 1900s. We're talking did that really kind of catch hold and create any kind of division? Well, not really until like the, the Hoffman Weider era, right? you know? So we're talking like the forties at the earliest where that really was a thing. Um, so bodybuilding competitions in the eight, late 1800s, the very earliest ones in the early 1900s, uh, they almost always had a physical component they would proceed a weightlifting competition, um, or they would they would follow it, uh, typically following it because the weightlifting was seen as the primary act. Right, um, and there was always this kind of understanding that the two went hand in hand. So, physical culture kind of describes that whole movement, and it's this very like health health and performance focused kind of holism, very serious approach towards uh, towards towards health that was different from what came before. Because it was at the time when the, the industrial era was started. Mm. So uh, prior to that, you know, you didn't have the, I would say, the widespread, um, not that it was great in 1800s, don't get me wrong, like there was cholera and the Great Depression and all that. <laughs> but I mean, if you compare it to, to prior eras, fitness is very much like, like a luxury. Yeah. And it's only something necessary when you get like agricultural and, and onward. And then even more so, like, I mean, if you look at like the studies currently today on like Quakers uh, who still live in an agricultural society, they, they move a lot and they're, they're in great shape and they're very healthy. So it's like there was hunter gatherers far more active, but often malnourished mm. agricultural society, very sufficiently active to be, maintain a lot of health, um, but not malnourished, which is great. And now we have today where we, we are struggling with the lack of necessity to move, mm. right? So physical culture was kind of the, the first true fitness movement. And it was also the first time resistance training became a large and even central component to it. So that was new and it was very much a, a counterculture at the time as well. Um, and I know this isn't a history podcast that we're doing, so I, I no, won't no, try to, try no, to great. I won't wax too much. Um, <laughs> but there was a lot of pushback as to the potential downsides of lifting, that it would make you muscle bound, yeah. uh, that it would lead to athlete's heart, um, which, which apparently was a bad thing. Right. You know, get a heart attack, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and there were some unfortunate things that happened uh, that, that, that kind of kept those myths alive for a long time. Um, and it really was decades, uh, before resistance training was seen in that same kind of ubiquitously good way that we see it today in the strength conditioning and fitness community. That is one of the many viable paths and choices you can, you can, you can walk down. But if we, we contrast, um, today versus then it's ironic to me that something that was considered 
weird, new, crazy, and then caught fire. And everyone was like, oh, this is so cool and new. It was CrossFit. Right. Um, which CrossFit is kind of like a a version of physical culture, um, but almost forgetting its roots to some degree. Like, and here are the specific movements we're going to do. Like, there's certainly elements, and I, I respect CrossFit. Don't get me wrong. And I think it's done a lot of good in terms of building community. Mm. Um, but the the era of once physical culture moved from being a cultural movement to a competitive outlet, uh, that always breeds specialization, which mm. is not a bad thing. So, so once you're now trying to compete, you're looking for gains and efficiency. It becomes an engineering problem, right? So um, there's a reason why people are bigger today than they were in the 1800s and they're stronger. It's not just anabolic steroids. Of course, that's a huge part of it. But if you look at um, like top tier natural bodybuilders today compared to uh, really good bodybuilders in the 1800s, um, they're, they're objectively better, you know? Uh, and if you look at strength records from now versus then, they're also better in, in, in the drug tested ranks. So it's definitely uh, strengths, uh, sports are rewarded by, by becoming more specific. Mm. Um, and that kind of gets us to the whole concurrent training topic mm. in that, um, it's amazing what the physical, what the human body can do. Um, and it can be good at a lot of things at once, the whole kind of general all around athlete, um, you know, the fittest man in the world or fittest woman in the world now in CrossFit, um, was something that was much more aspired to and not seen as necessarily compromising anything back in the physical culture era. Um, you know, if, if someone was like, yeah, I, I run marathons, I lift weights and I have a great physique, that, that's just called being a physical culturist, maybe not necessarily marathons, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and today that is seen as like, well, that's not possible. Yeah. So I think, I think that that's kind of where we've, we've gone to. And some of that is just kind of continually raising the bar. Some of that's influenced by, uh, by Instagram, you know, like if you could, squat 400 pounds, you know, in the early 1900s, you were incredibly strong uh, as a male. And, and now that's like, you know, gym strong, Yeah, yeah. you know, so it's, it's, uh, it, it depends on what level we're trying to get to, Yeah, you yeah. know? So if you look at like the strongest CrossFit athletes, they're average powerlifters and average weightlifters. Uh, if we look at the full competitive spectrum. Now, if you compare them to anyone to gym, of course they're incredible. Absolutely. Don't get me wrong. So it's all a matter of referencing. Yes. Um, so I think it is certainly undeniable that if you want to be a world champion in two very divergent sports, that's very difficult to do, if not impossible in most cases. Uh, and the times where you do see that happen, where someone has gone on to be a world champion in two different sports or an elite level athlete, um, they're very much an outlier. Um, and that I think is that that's still true. That always probably will be true. But then the question is, like you said, the average gym goer. That's not even their goal. So why do we get so focused on that mm. in in the uh, this, this space? I think yeah. even among the powerlifters and physique athletes I know, um, less among the competitive ranks, but certainly among like the recreational but highly serious ranks, there's at least some point, because I've been around the block long enough now, kind of lifting for coming up on 17 years. Yeah. I've seen people have phases in their career where they were all serious about it. They took some time off or they dabbled in CrossFit or they did this. Um, so I think most people are going to find themselves in a place where this becomes a relevant question, even if it's not now, is how do I uh, balance 
seemingly conflicting fitness domains uh, because of my personal interests or what's keeping me motivated or because a lockdown has prevented me from lifting heavy whatever mm. you know so i think it's a very relevant question yeah i, I think when it, it comes down to specificity right and and so like i guess you have to differentiate between the the clients or the athlete or whoever who is deciding do i want to be competitive in this specific sport or am I just doing this for the overall well-being of movement and enjoying exercise and getting whatever outcome comes from it? And so, like you're saying, if you want to, if like most of these modalities is most of them are like skill based. Like if you want to be really good at powerlifting, that's a specific skill that you have to prioritize, right? Same with like ultra endurance running. If you want to be really good at that, you're going to spend most of your time ultra endurance running. So I guess there is this understanding of like, hey, are you? trying to compete in something at a high level then like i mean i had jacob skippers on here um episode eight i believe and he talked about you know you can be um a jack of all trades um and or yeah and a master of none right so you're not going to ever be like amazing at one single thing but i guess for this specific episode yeah it's really sort of i want to cater towards those people who are just like hey i'm not doing this for a competitive um you know desire to be the best mm. i'm just doing these things because i like the challenge i like being i have i have an identity that's based on being healthy and fit and doing things that i really enjoy and challenge me um and so understanding how can i structure these different things that i like to do to um i guess get the most benefit out of all of them um so what do you think so like i guess the main downsides are of someone who is wanting to do concurrent training and maybe if we even define concurrent training is that a broad term in the sense that it includes all different training modalities or are we just talking about concurrent training in terms of like anaerobic and aerobic training good question yeah so concurrent training is a term that is primarily manifested in the context we're talking about in the scientific community and yeah. it does mean uh, resistance training and aerobic training so it is uh, pretty specific and people will, will talk about it in, in different lights. Um, but if we want to talk about what is there a lot of research on and um, what do we, what do we know about? It is the trying to get stronger uh, or bigger or more powerful through resistance training while also trying to say enhanced VO2 max through, through some type of aerobic training. So <clears throat> I have to say for the, the average person, there is no downside. You're going to be healthier by doing both resistance training and aerobic training. Um, you're all the, almost every metric I can think of, of health and quote unquote general fitness are improved by doing both rather than hindered. You know, um, I think one of the most important things to, to note about concurrent training, and this is mostly for the uh, the, the people who are way on the, the crazy extreme of I only lift weights and then I try to avoid, you know, taking the stairs because I don't want to lose gains <laughs> yeah. um, is that all of the concurrent training data suggests that the rate of gain is slower if you were doing sufficient amounts with concurrent training, not that you lose anything. Um, and it is actually a pretty significant amount of both that you have to do before there's an interference effect. You know, my, my, my bias, my frame of reference is a lifter mm. who sometimes may or may not want to do a cardio. And I'm worried about the effect on lifting. I don't really think about it from the other perspective, but the data that way is even, uh, less convincing that there's an issue. 
the uh, from what I've seen, the likelihood of lifting inhibiting you as a marathon runner, for example, is is much lower, and the mag- magnitudes of effect are much smaller compared to the likelihoods and magnitudes the other way mm. of trying to get huge while running marathons. But that's not the same as saying I can't walk my dog. You know, it's still it's still a significant amount of cardio you have to do and do it in a inadvisable structure and timing for you to actually start to see a negative effect on resistance training outcomes. Yeah. So I guess a lot of that is alluding to the interference effect. Mm-hmm. And you're, like you're saying, most of that is from the perspective of someone who is a lifter, wants to prioritize you know, specific adaptations from lifting, whether it's muscle mass or strength, and the interference of yeah, conditioning or aerobic training with with lifting so what what is the interference effect and you know how how do we kind of i guess um uh i guess yeah uh, make sure that that is not the limiting factor for our progression absolutely so the interference effect is the central question of why we even study concurrent training you know how do we how do we per- proceed to get these um seemingly conflicting adaptations because if we think about it like if you think about what you know about energy systems if you think you know what what you know about muscle fiber types uh, which is where the energy system is actually taking place uh, if we think what we know about the necessary time domains and uh, like force and power characteristics of muscle they're quite different being able to produce a small amount of force for a very long time period um, and you know complete a distance versus say trying to lift the most amount of weight I can for one rep. So the interference effect is typically categorized or conceptualized into two different, uh, I should say mechanisms. One is the more mechanistic physiological explanation, uh, which is that the actual stimuli adaptations and molecular signaling that goes on from a aerobic bout actually interferes with those same or, or, or the, the, the signaling that goes on from a resistance training bout. Um, and you can do the, the bio biochemistry and look at that and be like, Oh, there are problems here, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and that is probably why when you look at, uh, interference effects on power, strength, and hypertrophy, they kind of fall along that order. So, the biggest difference between a slow twitch and a fast twitch fiber is not that one is necessarily better in all cases for strength, power, and hypertrophy. Um, slow twitch and fast tw- fast twitch fibers can hypertrophy and become larger. So a bodybuilder would want to make them all grow, right? Um, then we will shift to strength, which is the expression of force without necessarily worrying about um, the, the, the force time characteristics necessarily. So power which is force times velocity. So not caring about the speed of contraction, a slow twitch fiber of the same cross-sectional area as a fast twitch fiber can produce the same force. Now the rate of force development might be a little different. The, 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 uh, conduction velocity of the contraction is faster in a, in a, in a, in a fast fiber. And it is quite literally faster. So power is absolutely higher in a fast switch fiber. And it's probably no surprise that the concurrent effects are the least or the interference effect is, is least affecting hypertrophy, second least affecting strength, and affecting power the most. That's mm. that's generally what you look at mm. or what you can observe when you look at the effects. So I've gotten a little off topic. But anyway, so no, these, that's great. these two uh, kind of ways that we think interference happens. There's the molecular stuff. And then there's just the practical effects. And that is that if I told you right now to go run a marathon and then do a 5 by 5 workout, y- you know you'd be lifting less weight during the 5 by 5 
It's just the way it goes. It's called being tired. So, the, <laughs> so the, one of the pathways of the interference effect is called being tired. Essentially. <laughs> um, so, and, and that is interesting because it has been demonstrated how that can affect things uh, in some semi-recent meta-analyses. So meta-analysis is just a collection of all the randomized controlled trials on the topic. Gives us an overarching view of the literature with a little more statistical power. Um, if you were around in the fitness industry in the 2000s, all the way up to, I would say, like 2010, 2011, 2012, high-intensity interval training was the craze um, from an efficiency standpoint and burning calories while also building muscle mass in the general population if you were kind of in the personal training sector. And then in the bodybuilding community, there was a sector of people who believed it was the pathway to avoiding interference. I can burn calories um, and I can avoid getting the interference effect because going all out for 15 seconds, resting 45 seconds and going again is quite similar to just bodybuilding training, you know? Um, and that's just one of the many types of uh, rest to work ratios you might see. There's, you know, one minute and two minute, which again, very similar to like say high rep resistance training. Right. So when you share the same um, metabolic characteristics, the molecular interference does seem to go away. However, the being tired effect, it does not. And there's a number of ways this can express itself. So there's some data from the 80s, which I always like to cite, uh, that looks at the occurrence rate of injuries in endurance athletes compared to sprinters. And the sprinters, even when matched for distance, have uh, a factor of higher rates of injuries because the intensity is higher over that same, same distance. So you're more likely to, say, pull your hammy sprinting than you are you know, running slowly. That shouldn't surprise anyone, but we have data showing that even when you match for distance, that, that happens. So intensity is typically uh, linked to higher injury risk. You know, that's, that's kind of just the name of the game and exercise. So there's that. That's something you have to consider. And one thing I noticed, you know, every time back when I was hardcore hit for my uh, kind of mentality, like 2007, 2009 uh, contest preps as a bodybuilder, I strained my hammy in oh, 2007. And then I tore my hamstring in 2009. And in both cases, I was doing like high intensity interval training yeah. and then sprinting because um, <laughs> I did run a little bit in high school. So I thought I knew what I was doing right? Um, with additional 30 pounds of mass and no, no more coaching. Right? <laughs> so, um, so anyway, there's that. But also, so there's a meta-analysis that's, that specifically looks at the effects of high intensity interval training and interference. And it didn't seem to find an effect, I believe, for hypertrophy. But when you looked at performance there was a small effect size that favored resistance training only, meaning that when you're combining high-intensity interval training with strength training, it can actually inhibit your strength. And that makes sense. Like if, again, if I told you to do a marathon or a bunch of repeated sprint intervals then go to a five-by-five session, you're going to be tired. It produces muscle damage. It produces fatigue. It is a stimulus, right? So I think even when you start to manipulate the uh, work to time ratios and the effort and the intensity and you do intervals, uh, you still have to be aware that it is exercise, you know? So um, then we, we can understand, okay, so if those are the pathways to interference, there is the potential of, uh, you know, counteracting signals and there's the potential of just being tired. And then we can start to come up with a rationale for how might I structure my training? What type of training might I do? How much time and at what intensity and what effort level and with what rest interval am I going to give attention to aerobic versus uh, resistance training? Yeah. And there's also been a lot of research on that. So, yeah. What are the, um, I guess maybe circling back to like the molecular side, um, just to kind of go off that tangent on the fiber types again, mm. 
the one of the things that I guess I've heard and never really clarified is like if you know we're, when we're talking about these different training styles, whether it's aerobic and anaerobic training styles, if you're training more of one or the other, does do fiber types actually like change and like convert to another type of fiber, or do you have like a you know certain percentage split over a muscle and it's just like that the whole time, and then one you know exercise is just utilizing more of one or the other? That's a great question. So we, you know, if we were to go kind of like your stock standard textbook answer, um, what I was taught coming up as a, a student of exercise science was that there are certain chassis that don't change. Like a, a slow twitch fiber is never going to become a fast twitch fiber. Um, and fast twitch fibers are never going to become slow twitch. And I think not to get too much into the weeds, but the methods by which we do fiber typing has changed over time. And some of the methods by which we used originally lended themselves towards interpreting uh, fiber types as a classification system rather than necessarily a continuum. So within slow twitch and fast twitch fibers, there are certainly a continuum. It can be a slower fast twitch fiber to or towards a faster fast twitch fiber. And just the same thing, a slower slow twitch fiber or a faster uh, slow twitch fiber. And there are intermediary fibers. Um, the degree to which you can actually see whether it's actually true that there's these chassis differences is, is somewhat true. So fibers, uh, the fiber characteristics are dependent on the motor unit that innervates them. So they've actually done this in animal models where they will take the motor unit for fast twitch fibers and hook it up to slow twitch fibers and they start to take on the characteristics of fast twitch fibers. Um, the degree to how this can happen without, you know, cutting nerves and changing their, their placement in muscles is I would say, and I, this is not my area of expertise. Mm. You'd have to ask somebody like an Andy Galpin, uh, is unclear, but there may be some, some, some broader conversions than we think. And there are some interesting indirect data lines that, that suggest that the degree to how much this can change, um, probably not as much as we think, but the degree to which this matters may not be as much as we used to think. So I'd mm. say it's more plastic. It is definitely a continuum within each category of slow or fast twitch. Uh, there is probably some way of getting a conversion from one to the other, but it's probably far less than moving towards more intermediary types. Um, and in, at least in terms of strength performance, not power and not endurance, um, it probably doesn't make nearly as much of a difference as you think. Mm. Uh, there is no data to suggest, for example, uh, that power lifters with more fast twitch fibers are likely to perform better. Uh, there's, there's like no relationship wow. when you look at that. Um, and that kind of comes back to that fiber type characteristic and the fact that all of them have the capacity to hypertrophy. Mm. So it's, um, I think there's probably a lot more to learn about fiber typing. Uh, but certainly when we're talking about extreme ends of the spectrum, like let's say someone who wants to be a shot putter and also run marathons. Um, well, there's some muscle group differences there, but nonetheless, um, if you can imagine something that is very, very power dependent and something that is very, very long distance endurance dependent, there would probably be some big differences based on, you know, fiber type distribution. And when you look at elite level athletes, you can observe those differences. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not present in all sports the way we would traditionally think of in kind of the resistance training sector. So for the remainder, I guess, of this discussion, I probably want to look at it from like the perspective of majority of the listeners who will be predominantly training strength and hypertrophy style, yep. but wanting to throw in some other training modalities here and there for fun or for, for social or whatever. Um, 
so I guess I guess framing it from the perspective of hey, look, we want to maximize strength and muscle retention while maybe prioritizing or dabbling in something else. And even to give like for myself as an example, um, you know, generally I spend a lot of my time doing mainly hypertrophy style training, but then you know, and I'm always trying to restrict or pull back on these other things that I'm doing so that it doesn't hamper my mm. my um, adaptations to that training, whether it's like, hey, I probably shouldn't be you know, running up this hill with my dog or I shouldn't be um, entering in a 10K race or anything like that and trying to reduce those as much as possible. Probably the 10K more than the hill with the dog, right. I would say. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but it's just the case of like, sometimes I'll get an itch or I'll be like, Oh, I just want to, I just want to do, and I think it probably comes from like my, my army background where it was yeah. like, you know, everything was concurrent training, right? Like mm-hmm. we were doing, um, well, I was at least doing some bodybuilding training, but then we were having to go on like, you know, run 10K with a pack or whatever. Yep. So very, very different. And I guess sometimes I just get a, I want to, I want to do these things again. So for example, this year I'm doing some obstacle course races and there's a bunch of us working towards a marathon at the end of the year as well. So very different to to what I usually do, but the goal here is to try and maintain as much of my tissue as I can and to um, somewhat maintain strength, although I'm not so worried about the strength because I know, you know, I can just, you know, specialize again in a, in a, in a strength protocol program Mm. and, and I'll gain that back. But it's like the tissue. I'm like, Oh, I don't want to want to lose that. Um, So frame it, I guess from that perspective, um, how do you think like different training styles actually affect our ability to maintain strength and muscle gain like different activities modalities absolutely and we actually have a good bit of uh, information on this that's collected over the years since the late 80s when this was started to be studied so we know there's a there's a cool meta-analysis in 2011 uh, on this topic that basically looks at strength hypertrophy and power and that does show again higher effects on on power lesser effects on strength lesser lesser effects on hypertrophy they also show local effects so if you're doing a bunch of cycling, um, you don't really need to worry about whether your, your chest or your back or your arms is going to be negatively affected. Uh, and another really important thing is that it's dose response. So I think sometimes people will go like oh, cardio or no cardio. We have mm. this, when we don't yes. know a topic well enough, we fall into the camp of, well, it's a categorical variable rather than a variable that is, you know, has a dose response, right? Right. So it's yeah. either I am doing cardio and that's bad or I'm not. And that's good. And that's, that's the people who avoid the elevator or, or only use the elevator, avoid the stairs, excuse yes, me, yes. who don't want to lose gains. That's right. But the actual observed effect is that the negative effect on resistance training outcomes scales with the volume, the frequency, and the volume and the frequency of the cardio done, mm. right? So if you were doing one hard run a week, that's probably not going to do much, you know? Um, if you were doing three hard ones one runs a week that's probably going to do more yeah. you know which is a very simple concept but it's worth pointing out 100%. and again also as i mentioned at the start that effect is not how much gains you lose but it is the attenuation or the slowing down of the gains you're getting so if let's say you're getting a hundred percent of gains doing you know only one or two cardio sessions a week you go to your third it might be now you're getting 95 percent of your gains you might not even notice the difference um, and that's not a real number, but the point is, is that, uh, it only becomes a problem to where you're worrying about pure maintenance of tissue or mitigating the loss when you're really emphasizing uh, the cardio side of it. And you can actually get away with a fair bit, uh, especially if you distribute it right. And that's where kind of the data after that 2011 meta analysis come in. So in the last 10 years, cause 2011, believe it or not, was 10 years ago, um, <laughs> 
has has clarified some of the the distribution and timing. So when you do cardiovascular training before resistance training, you're going to get both the potential molecular effects and that whole I'm tired effect. When you do it afterwards, you're only getting the molecular effect. And then if you wait long enough where they're not kind of those adaptations aren't stepping on each other, uh, that's when you start to see a lesser interference effect. When you do them on separate days, it has a big mitigating effect. So if you were to combine a lot of the data on this and kind of get a um, an order of priorities of how you would distribute things, best case scenario is you do training for endurance and training for uh, strength or hypertrophy on different days. Mm. And that is probably the way to avoid the molecular interference effect the most. After that, separating it by at least three hours seems to be nearly as good as doing it on a different day. Um, and after that, doing it after, basically prioritizing what you care about most. Mm. So if you only had, you know, let's say two hours to train in a day and you couldn't split it up, you would do your, your strength training and then you'd go on your run or you'd go on your bike. If you had a much more flexible schedule, you could wake up in the morning, do your resistance training, and then go for an evening, evening jog or something like that. And of course, there's a lot of other factors, you know, how well do you train in the morning? You know, are, are there temporal effects for you? Are you a morning person? Um, you know, scheduling all that stuff. So sometimes those are going to take precedence over the hypotheticals that I'm talking about. But mm -hmm. in general, the more you can separate the sessions, um, the lesser effect they're going to have on one another. Then you also have to think about, okay, well, how fatiguing are these sessions into the next day? Uh, because while you might not get the molecular effect, if you are glycogen depleted, tired and have some muscle damage, and then you have to train the next day, it's just not going to be a good training session. So there are definitely some distribution concerns. Mm. And I think this goes nicely into considering that when you look at some like rugby league players, when you look at some American football players, they're pretty big and they're pretty freaking strong and mm. they're also in pretty damn good shape. Yeah. So it's certainly possible. And one thing that is done typically in strength and conditioning circles in these sports is some form of periodization. So periodization, while not directly implemented and intended to combat the interference effect, uh, it certainly can do that. Uh, and it allows for the uh, purposeful manipulation of variables and timing of different training foci to try to maximize performance, which effectively is the same as trying to minimize any negative effect on performance. So like from a periodization perspective, uh, that's all about just timing and planning and managing fatigue. So I think when you sit down and you look at your training schedule uh, and you want to do, you know, training for, let's say, a 5K or a 10K, you want to think about, OK, well, where am I doing leg training? Um, what volume of leg training do I need to do to maintain? And this is actually a really another interesting question is um, we often ask the question of what's the optimal amount of volume, what's the peak intensity that I need, what is the optimal frequency, uh, what's the optimal approach to gain strength as fast as possible. We don't often ask, what do I, knew, what do I need to, to prevent detraining? And mm -hmm. that's actually a really useful question um, because that's where intensity is actually a very uh, powerful tool. So the whole thing about high intensity interval training is you're doing a much smaller dose of aerobic training, but you're getting a similar effect because you've ramped up the intensity and done it in a smaller time. Period. That's cool, right? The same thing is true of lifting. The most potent stimulus for a one RM is a one RM. Mm. Um, but that's also fatiguing. It's also the most, it's the most fatiguing and hard and challenging and mentally stressful single rep you can do is a one RM. Um, maybe one that you miss when you don't have a spotter, but you know, in, in considering reps, you complete, it's a one RM, right? So, um, 
kind of circle it back to your, your, your question that you mentioned we might get into is how do, how do I compete in multiple strength sports? One of the tools I use is low volume, high intensity work. Uh, a single at a moderate RPE is quite sufficient to maintain strength on a movement um, or the vast majority of it, but it takes the least amount of time. Mm. You know, for me to work up to a single at a five or a six RPE on a squat, that's, that's, that's like your four to six RM. It's heavy, but it's just one rep. Yeah. Um, So that's the type of thing that you can get done in eight minutes, depending on how quick you warm up once you actually hit the bar. Uh, And then you can move on to whatever the heck else you want to do. And that same concept can be put into uh, a more general, like concurrent training program. So I think generally you don't want to operate from a place of fear. Like if you have the goal of, I want to be really good at a marathon or a 10 K or a five K or a half marathon, you probably want to shift your focus to, all right, I want to train for that optimally. And then within that construct, you go, okay, where can I fit in some resistance training that won't interfere with that to maintain what I've got. And also knowing that even if you do regress 10% to 20%, let's that that's honestly an alarmist uh, decision I, I would think in most cases, unless you're truly becoming an endurance athlete who occasionally lifts. Um, I think most of the time, especially now that people have had some experience with lockdowns and coming back from it, we're realizing how easy it is to regain ground we've already attained. Mm. You know, like um, anyone who's been hurt, uh, anyone who's done a contest prep and lost some muscle because they weren't eating at all, and then you get back into a caloric surplus and you actually recover and you start lifting again, you get your head right, you realize that regaining lost muscle mass and lost strength is a pretty expeditious, you know, like process. It happens fast. Yeah. Um, and that's, and, and those are like injury is, is a much more, you don't have agency there. You know, you actually can't train, um, and you have damaged to tissue. What we're talking about is not being able to, you know, divert the same amount of resources to training because I'm focusing on training for something else simultaneously. So it's, it's not even necessarily a fair comparison. Mm. Um, you don't have to deal with detraining when you do, uh, you know, aerobic exercise in addition to resistance training. You just have to pick your spots better. It's. So so much of what I see in, in regards to this is just people, yeah, adding adding running on top of uh, already established like program they got online, you know, and there's just no thought to like how is this how is this going to actually affect my recovery because yep. everything has a cost and me doing this, you know, five k run on a Monday and then I've got my like football training on a Wednesday or whatever that means that my my like lower upper lower program might no longer work as well because. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to be doing my lower body like right before I go for my 5k run or whatever. So, um, so I guess that's the biggest the mistake I see is people just merging two different types together. So if we look at it from the perspective of someone who is, yeah, wanting to maybe dabble in, um, endurance based training, but they've, you know, come from a decent amount of training in the gym already, a bit, you know, maybe they were, late novice early intermediate trainee um what what are they looking at in terms of like you're like you're alluding to what's the least they can do to sort of maintain that strength and muscle mass in terms of like the amount of volume and and how you talked about intensity as well because that's even one i found is recently and i've been programming for a couple of people doing the similar thing is the we actually tried doing some some top sets and back off sets mm. like on a barbell squat on a monday as just like our main kind of leg movement for the day um and then you know so we're not so fatigued for like a tuesday kind of conditioning run 
But I think one of the biggest issues I found, at least anecdotally, is working up to that really hard top set, and it was kind of like a you know RP nine type sort of top set. I mean, that was really tough, mm-hmm. and, and the legs were already a little bit beat up from like the previous week's running, you know, like a Saturday long run or something like that. So I found like, oh, maybe that's not the best option, even though like intensity is really high, which I was just alluding to is quite a good idea. Um, but perhaps maybe going for a lower intensity, high volume approach for me specifically was a better a, a better idea to do just because psychologically I could do you know, three sets at a, at a six RPE as opposed to like a top set at a, at a, at a nine is a lot easier mentally for me to go into. Um, but yeah, do you have some thoughts on that? And in, in regards to like, okay, what's what's the kind of target we should be hitting in terms of volume, especially if we're kind of trying like maintain say leg size? Sure. Yeah. So I think if, if, if the question is strength, it's easy. Like strength is always expressed through a skill. Uh, we'll use that same, like if someone is yeah. interested in, in maintaining their one RM back squat strength, <clears throat> they don't need to do a single at a nine. You know, I, I actually recommend thinking about what is the lightest single I can do where I get serious, Right. where I have to think about my walkout. I have to think about my breathing. I think about my hand placement. I want to put on my knee sleeves, my belt, and I want to put on my wrist wraps to make my, make sure my, my wrists are comfortable. Uh, and I get in all the air I can and I think about and control the speed on the, on the descent and it is challenging on the way up, but I'm not at all afraid of it. Mm. So it's, it's basically what is the, the minimum single to respect the weight. So for me, that is like a five RPE, six RPE, you know, like for example, I just competed in a powerlifting meet and now I'm doing non-specific training because it's like 18 weeks before nationals. Um, but I'm keeping in the easiest challenging single I can. So I squatted like 180 for a single and I can probably squat like on a, on a good day, 225 or something like that. So it's, right. is it 80 to 85% of one RM? Yeah. I'm never going to miss that for a single unless I'm hurt mm. or like I close my eyes and or pass out or something like that. <laughs> so I'm not scared of it, yeah. but it gives me the opportunity to focus with intent on what I'm doing and practice it. And I think, so for maintaining strength, you can get by with just a couple, like truly just working up to a single with intent at, at a weight like that once a week. And that will do a huge amount to prevent decay of strength. Right. Now, if we're talking about size, though, that is more volume dependent. Right. So, and that is where, um, you know, dropping back the RPE a little bit, doing, you know, if you're used to doing, say, two to three exercises for three to four sets, doing one to two exercises for two sets is the type of thing you can do. We have some data, and it's not like on highly trained individuals, that you can cut your volume in half, maybe even and down to one third um, with sufficient intensity proximity to failure. doesn't mean to failure, but like you said, an RPE six to, to, to eight, somewhere in there um, with that kind of volume. And you will probably hold on to the vast majority of your size. And I have seen multiple people who they have an assumption about how much volume they need to do to, to induce growth, to induce strength, because they have watched YouTube videos, they've read articles, they've read books that give kind of the general guidelines. What they don't realize is that if you go one full standard deviation, you know, down or standard deviation and a half, which isn't even an outlier, you know, right. that would cover someone who's, you know, 40, 50% less than the mean, which is a lot of people. Um, that might be more than enough to make them grow successfully. And they've never actually tried a low volume approach because mm. everyone talks about volume. Right. You know, so if you, if you started with, oh, I'll just do 10 sets for muscle group, great place to start. I would even recommend that if you don't have training history, mm. but it wouldn't be that weird to be someone who grows better on six sets than 10. 
until maybe, you know, you're, you're a little more advanced, maybe, but there are some people who just don't need that much volume and you don't know unless you experiment. So it's a good opportunity, uh, to, to, to give that a go and, uh, and see what's the, the least amount I need to progress. Um, not that we would spend much time there as a serious athlete, yeah. but that's a really, really useful thing to know is how much can I dial it back and still progress? Yeah. Because that gives you opportunities to deal with other stressors and have um, much less fear that you're you're actually moving backwards. You know, simply being able to march forward is um, one of the best confidence builders you can have in times of stress. So anyway, that's yeah. a little bit of a tangent, but I would say in general, I would say if if you can do four sets per muscle group per week at at a moderately high RPE, um, you will probably be able to maintain the vast majority of your size. And if you can also build up to like, you know, a single at, at a decent RPE on every lift that you care about your, your strength on, that's more, you know, technically, technical and complex. Like you might care about your leg press strength. You don't need to work up to a single at a five RPE on, on a sled that only goes right. at a 45 degree angle, no matter what, how you push on it. Right? <laughs> so, but like a squat, a snatch, yeah. a clean and jerk, you yeah. know, a bench press, if you're doing a powerlifting style, is actually quite technically demanding. Uh, sumo deadlift, you mm-hmm. know, those are all things that you'd probably want a little more uh, regular practice on. Um, so you can get away with just, you know, a set a week, practicing the lift, four to six sets per muscle group at, at a decent RPE, not necessarily to failure. Um, obviously you can go closer to failure on movements that are a little less demanding. Like if you're doing lateral raises, that's, you know, don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, and then you can fill in as much cardio as needed to, to achieve your goal. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's a question that I don't often get asked. Most of the time I get asked, um, how do I retain everything while doing cardio? Yeah. And when people say cardio, they don't mean I care about the speed that I run that, you know, 5k. It's just how many calories do I need to burn? And that's a much more familiar question to me and much easier question yeah. to answer. It's all right. Well, what doesn't cause muscle damage? You know, okay. So we probably want to do something like the elliptical or cycling. What doesn't have impact? You know, most people aren't like, I can't wait to do a 5k on the elliptical. You know, <laughs> yeah. They want to go out and, and run, yeah. often, you know, yeah. and less, less, you know, bike and sometimes swim and this other, other, other modality. So it's easy to tell someone, uh, reduce impact, reduce muscle damage, um, make sure that you're, you're spreading it around. Sometimes you're on the rower. Sometimes, you know, you use your arms and ellipticals. So it's not just all this leg fatigue, mm. uh, do it on different days, keep your sessions to under 30 minutes. And, um, remember that the interference effect only happens when you're actually inducing an aerobic stimulus. So if it's low intensity enough, like walking your dog, yeah. if that is not an aerobic challenge for you, you're not getting an aerobic adaptation. Therefore there can't be the interference effect. So that yeah. story people have probably heard me say before if they followed my content that's, yeah. it's easy to tell a bodybuilder or a powerlifter how to get in shape or how to cut weight and that is basically do a little bit of higher intensity stuff but avoid it uh, consciously affecting your leg training uh, and then do as much very low intensity stuff with that, that, that you need to to get into shape to complement what you're doing you know with nutrition to make weight or get shredded um and yeah. then just consider that you want to keep it low intensity enough to not not induce an aerobic adaptation and you want to avoid you know impact or muscle damage because those can independently affect things negatively yeah easy answer yeah. much harder answer like i said of well okay i want to maintain my size and run a marathon yeah i never ran a marathon yeah i never coached someone to run a marathon <laughs> however i can tell you that you need to do whatever training is necessary to get better running a marathon yeah and then here's the minimum amount that you probably that's need right. to maintain strength and size so it's that's about the best yeah. answer 
this this meathead can give you well no it's just it's just <laughs> it's changing the perspective right because yeah. like you're saying like for the listeners it's a completely different question mm. the, the, if you're if your sole goal is is muscle retention and you want to get shredded for the beach and you want to yeah you want to throw on some cardio to help with fat loss and, and calorie you know calorie wastage um that's a completely different question to i've actually signed up for a half marathon and now my priority is how can i get these anaerobic also aerobic adaptations so these endurance adaptations while trying to maintain tissue so such a different question and, and you would program them completely differently right um so that's a really good i guess differentiation to mm-hmm. make for people um so, and to, to have a think about what what do they actually want to capitalize on what do they want the outcome to be um so i guess one of the big one of the big issues i see is people not really knowing um what is too much mm. like when it comes to recovery it's kind of like you know you ask people that come in here all the time it's like how are you feeling today like how, how are you feeling after last week's training and people just don't really kind of think about that they're like oh, yeah I, I feel okay everyone's just like oh, i'm okay i'm like okay that doesn't really tell me much but um you know they don't really know okay what is too much what is some um signals of high fatigue you know am i am my joints feeling beat up am i psychologically not here anymore you know like these types of things. So for someone who is, you know, jumping into these types of training methods and trying to maintain tissue, but also doing other training, um, whether it's, you know, marathon training or whether it is sports training or whatever, what are some ways that they can kind of manage fatigue and, and know, hey, am I actually doing too much? And I guess one of the big ones is, am I no longer progressing? Mm, yeah, no, that, that actually, they're, they're closely linked. Um, you know, if, if, if there is an interference effect that is becoming problematic, that would mean that you are actually starting to stagnate or you can't make progress at anything approximating the rate you were able to before. Mm. Um, and that is essentially the, the output of recovery. So from a sports science perspective, recovery is not necessarily how you feel, uh, but it is, can you improve? Mm. You know, do you have the, are the adaptations manifesting in improved performance? If we think about the, like the fitness fatigue, the, the dual factor model, as they say, when you train, you get tired and you also get more fit. And if the, the tiredness is not dissipating at a rate of indicating recovery, your performance won't go up because the fitness can't manifest because you're, you're too tired. Right. Mm. And then it actually becomes a chronic problem as then you can't induce a stimulus because you're too tired next time you train. So the fatigue is actually masking your ability to even induce fitness. Um, so that can happen. Um, and that indicates you're under-recovered. That said, um, that happening for resistance training typically takes a lot of subjective things happening negatively first. Um, you're going to be feeling like crap. It typically causes, you know, there's joint issues, there's general aches and pains. You lose motivation to train. Um, because if you look at the data on like overtraining and overreaching and resistance training, um, you have to do a whole heck of a lot to not progress due to doing too much. Mm. It's far easier to be plateaued because you're not doing enough or your training isn't specific enough or it's not well designed or it's not being supportive by other factors in, in, in your lifestyle, nutrition or otherwise, uh, sleep. But to be doing so much volume at such a high intensity of resistance training to where you regress, um, you know that's coming far before you actually regress. You feel terrible, you know? Yeah. If you look at some of the protocols, there's actually a, uh, a systematic review of studies where they tried to induce overtraining, and only in about 50% of them did they actually succeed. Like they had people working up to a max, 
and doing like three times their normal volume almost daily and people got stronger. Wow. You know? But I guarantee you, if you qualitatively interviewed those people, yeah. totally unsustainable, they hated <laughs> it. And you're probably more likely to get injured than you are to actually experience like overtraining. Right. Right. And effectively, as far as a lifter is concerned, that might as well be the same thing. Mm. Like if you're on crutches and you go like, eh, overtraining doesn't exist. It's like, okay, but can you train and improve? No, no, I'm on crutches. <laughs> okay. So you effectively overtrained. It yeah. resulted in the inability to progress further, yeah, right? That's right. That's just because your hamstring snapped. It's not because <laughs> you have some kind of, you know, syndrome. But anyway, so I think from a recovery perspective, what you want to be thinking about is, you know, am I progressing, but does this feel sustainable? Um, and how, how is my motivation to train? Am I able to train pain-free? Mm. Uh, and is it preventing me from doing anything? If I have to constantly modify my training, it's probably too much, you know? Yeah. So a lot of the times, uh, like you said, it is people who are just taking a running program they found online and a resistance training program they found online and then marrying them, um, when they probably should be divorced, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and that often, it, I mean, it depends on the person, like, mm. When I was a personal trainer, I didn't have to worry about fatigue that much because you're only training three days a week, like more than that's three hours out of, you know, 24 times seven in yeah. a week that, that they are actually training. And there's, it's very difficult to induce that much stress on someone who is, you know, starting their fitness journey and who is, you know, a, a gen pop quote unquote person who is trying to get into shape. They're not an elite level athlete who can really mess themselves up in an hour. Um, and you'd have to really be a bad trainer or a sadistic trainer to actually uh, do enough to where you had to consistently think about fatigue management for my two to three times a week clients, right? That's right. So it is much more of a thing like if you're in a like a CrossFit box. I think this is something people need to think about. Uh, they're putting themselves into end range, joint ranges of motion, high load, under fatigue regularly, and also dealing with life stress, you know? So I think that's definitely where you need to consider these things. So some really useful tools for people who want to uh, kind of manage fatigue or monitor it is what's called a sessional RPE. Um, so we often think of RPE, like we were talking about it before, how to work up to a single, you know, a single out of five. Okay. That's something I could do for six. Right. Um, and, uh, but stopping at one and that's great for monitoring, uh, load or, or I should say programming load, but session RPE is the overall rating of how the whole workout was. So after a cool off, you know, give yourself 10, 15 minutes and then think, all right, out of 10, how hard was that workout? Mm. Uh, and then you can see as you repeat the same similar microcycles, because most programs are like, here's your split, do it again next week and progress something. Um, generally, Monday is supposed to be about as hard as Monday was, maybe slightly harder. So if you're seeing a steady and re, uh, expected progression in session RPE, if Monday was a five and then next Monday is a six and you you know added a set or something or increased load by five kilos, that makes sense. Right? Yeah. Um, but if Monday goes from a five to an eight, that tells you that the overall week last week is something that is currently beyond your recovery capacities for it to be sustainable. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a pretty cool metric because there's a lot of research that shows session RPE is sensitive to volume, rest periods, load, proximity to failure and density of training. So everything that you can imagine that would make a session feel harder gets reflected and and how hard was that session? Yeah. Um, so you can look at sometimes, sometimes the way I do it is I will actually, and this can help you program. You can set out your, your, let's say your four days of training and you can think about what movements I'm doing, what fatigue will be generated. Okay. What would the expected session RP be for Monday? All right. Then I'm going to come back on Tuesday. Oh, I've got 
man, I've got a session RPE of eight planned on Monday, and then I'm supposed to come in and do a really hard session. Oh, and then you st- then you start thinking about programming it differently. Yeah. Um, so I think not only does does thinking about the sessional RPE for each session help you distribute your uh, microcycle, your week of training. That also allows you to then think about, okay, well, how is that going to go into the next week? What would I expect, you know, based on what I progress? And then how long before the whole week is a really, really high sessional RPE? Okay, that's probably when I would plan a deload or expect to want to take some time off or something like that. Yeah. And then you apply the same concept because session RPE actually started with endurance work. You can apply that to your your endurance work as well. Yeah. You can think about how does each one of those things Go back to back. And generally, I normally think of like, well, I want to go easy, hard, easy, hard, easy, hard. Um, and not necessarily like a two RPE and a, and a 10, but, <laughs> yeah. but something that is um, not not brutal after something that was and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So maybe if we can, um, before we sort of cover a little bit of nutrition interventions for these types of training, Maybe we can give some really cool practical takeaways for people um, in in a kind of a a theoretical um, model of training for a week or so, you sure. know, and, and how like if we if we do take that example of someone who is working towards some kind of endurance event and they want to maintain tissue across their body, how might that person actually structure a week of training um, using what we've just discussed in terms of you know some of those um, you know using high intensity yep. um, sets of, of specific exercises and then using the amount of, you know, volume, maybe cutting it by half um, and, uh, you know, making sure that we are keeping track of recovery. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think on one side of it, let's say someone who wants to start incorporating some cardio, but is primarily invested in their resistance training, you would probably think about keeping your resistance training quite similar to the way it is. And then how do we sneak in uh, cardio with the least amount of potential negative impact on, on training? And that's where you want to avoid things that have high impact. So like running. Uh, you want to avoid things that have any eccentric component. That's lengthening contraction. So if you think about cycling or an elliptical, there's this constant movement where you're never actually having to slow yourself down, mm. which is what the eccentric can be conceptualized as most easily. Uh, then you also want to think about how long are the sessions because we know the frequency and the uh, the time domain. So I'd probably keep them to under 30 minutes or at 30 minutes. Um, and then any, and I would say probably no more than once a week, which you want to have a like hard session of intervals. And you want to probably move that as far away as you can from any hard training of the same muscle groups. So if you were doing like rowing, that wouldn't be legs or back, right? Uh, if you're doing say cycling, then you want to have it away from your leg day. Um, in general, also you want to try to train on separate days, uh, or at the very least, um, separate them within the day, or I guess the very, very least, uh, do it after your resistance training. Yeah. And that is your, your, I'm primarily caring about resistance training, but I want to do more cardio. Yeah. And as a general rule of thumb, I think is a good way to look at the whole microcycle, probably keep the total time spent doing cardio to about half of that of your resistance training. That is not at all backed by any studies. That's just something that I find works well from a programming perspective that I've advised and uh, haven't yet had reason to revise that advice. Nice. That's great. Um, On the other side of it, if we've got someone who primarily cares about uh, endurance training for whatever type of event or purpose, but also wants to get the most out of the resistance training they can, either to maintain what they have or maybe concurrently, but it's just not their primary goal, um, then you want to set up your cardio or your endurance training 
for your goal. And that's where you'd have to talk to someone who isn't just a, uh, a singular focused meathead like myself. <laughs> they would help you do that. And then you would look at, all right, so which days do I need to be fresh for, for that endurance training? Mm. I probably don't want to train the same muscle groups with any kind of high volume training the day prior. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could do something like working up to a single at a moderately challenging RPE mm-hmm. um, to practice that skill. So you need to think of, all right, which movements do I care about in terms of uh, developing strength? And those are the ones that I want to have those practice sessions. It doesn't have to just be one single. You can do a couple. It depends on where you're at with your learning. Uh, but you want to have, you know, an intentional practice session. That Those could be, you know, three singles at 80%. That can be uh, an overwarm single at, at a six RPE or something like that. What I mean by overwarm is taking more jumps than needed just to get more time under the bar. I see. Or over the bar if you're deadlifting or something like that. Um, and then you need to think about, all right, so my overall hypertrophy goals, okay, I need to find a couple of favorite movements that conflict the least amount with what I'm doing. So, uh, my hips are normally achy when I do a lot of running, what movements don't go well with that. All right. I don't really want to do a whole lot of leg press. I'll do some leg extensions Yeah, and I'll do that one session of squats where I work up to a five RPE. Yeah. So choose basically joint friendly, easy exercises, uh, that you can get your four to six sets in at a six to eight RPE per week, somewhere in the eight to 15 rep range. And then think about where you distribute those relative to where you need to be fresh for running and where it doesn't necessarily matter. Mm. Um, and then in those cases, you could, I would think you would still follow the same uh, advice that I gave before about trying to separate sessions, uh, trying to do them either after, um, at running after doing cardio uh, resistance training because even though you now you care a lot about the cardio training remember back to what i said in the very beginning of this podcast well, not the very beginning but early yeah in that the effect on endurance training is less from resistance training than the other way around so i would still keep the priority uh, the order uh such that you would do resistance training uh first yeah and go on a run even if you were primarily caring about training for yeah you know a marathon or something like that yeah i think that's that's like a real common one I, i've seen in running communities since i've kind of started looking into running communities which i've never done before and people are like finishing a run and then they're like oh yeah and then i do my my strength work which is not like how we would probably think of strength work um it's it's probably more like you know working on my ankles or whatever you know but it's like I feel like you'd get more out of that if you did that before. You know what I mean? And and they just probably don't have that kind of same mindset of like the priority for me and for you is the is the resistance work. Um, so they're always like, hey, we'll do the run first because that is the priority. But like you're saying, it's 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 potentially better off for you because it doesn't affect it as much, right? Potentially, and, and you know, Jackson, there there is a point where there, that the perspective even shifts from everything we've talked about. So. The two perspectives that I've talked about are someone who is trying to maintain strength and hypertrophy and focus on a uh, an event yeah. that's for endurance, or someone who wants to do more cardio while still making progress with the resistance training because that's their primary goal. But a true endurance athlete, when they when you're talking about them doing their their work on their ankle, yeah, the only reason they're lifting is to improve their endurance performance. That's right. So that is actually a third perspective, I would say. And in yeah. that case, you could make an argument for leaning on the hypothetical potential benefit of I don't want to be at all. I want to be as fresh as possible when I go on my run. Is it going to hinder my resistance training? Sure, but that's fine. The resistance training is only in service of my endurance training. That's right, yeah. So I do think there is a case when we're talking about someone who is, you know, like a proper athlete, an endurance athlete who is lifting to enhance 
endurance training that yeah it does take backseat almost every time yeah no, i love that perspective that's really good well i guess one of the um i mean i'll run through like what i've been currently doing let me know if this is sort of out of whack or not sure. but kind of um and it's it's been working relatively well um i mean i've i did just kind of reduce the volume a little bit because i was kind of trying to do a little too much bodybuilding stuff and um and you know the recovery wasn't quite there so especially when coming back to like running after not running forever um but I, kind of similar to what we've been discussing is like the Monday would be um, some heavy work on squats, you know, and I've kind of dropped it down to like sub-maximal work. It's like, yeah, RP6 or something like that. Um, and, I'll, and I'll do some leg extensions in that session as well. So like a full body session, but I'll do a squat and some leg extensions because I want to get in that lower body volume. But like you're saying, it's like I need to choose exercises that aren't going to be hugely fatiguing. So leg extension, cool. I'm getting quad volume, but without like, messing up my hips and my knees and things like that so that's been really good because then the tuesday is a more tempo based running day so it might be at the track or it might be doing like a thirds run or, or a tempo run or something like this um where you know it's not a super long run but it is quite high intensity and then when i come in on the wednesday i still have like a little bit of i think i do leg extensions again so it's a little bit more lower body volume and that might not even need to be there if i'm getting enough on the monday um but I figure spreading it a little better helps me a little more not to be so fatigued on my running days. Um, and so another full body on Wednesday where I'm doing probably upper body, but a little bit of leg extensions and some calf work. Uh, Thursday is off or I'll do recovery on the elliptical because, yeah, again, no impact. There's no eccentric loading. So I'm not really getting any cost from it, but it's good you know, endurance work for me to do. Um, and then I'll have a long run on a Friday, which is, you know, gonna be that kind of main run of the week where i don't want to put anything around that run that's going to affect it which is why i have either an off day of recovery the day before it and the day after it i do solely upper body so that way yeah the priority is always that long run for the week um and i can structure the rest of the week based off that and that's kind of how i structure it for myself and for other clients is like okay cool this is the main thing we want to work on but where are we going to place other things throughout the week based on your schedule of course but um and it yeah it seems to be working quite well and i'll just see how that works and then i guess progressing towards an event starting to uh i guess bias volume away from strength work and a little Mm. more towards the running as those you know numbers need to start climbing in terms of kilometers i like that i think um yeah macro cycle moving inward definitely you should see the the volume go down in your strength work as it necessarily needs to go up in your in your endurance work yeah um then moving into the actual structure of the week i really like that you're like you know i don't necessarily need to do the leg extensions uh, on both days so i like the idea of just working up to you know a, like a a heavy set on squats and then going on the run the next day without the leg extensions. Right. Because then you could just do the leg extensions the next day. Yes. You know, when they're, they might, you might be a little fatigued from the run, but yep. so what? Yeah. You know, you're, you're doing yeah. the leg extensions to induce some fatigue and get some volume in on yep. your legs. Yeah. So I think um, that's something that's quite useful is separating in your head the, the skill work on a lift from the hypertrophy work for a muscle group, even though they share the same muscle group. So like mm, you can just throw in yeah. the leg extensions, like, all right, where is this not going to affect my cardio the next day? Or it doesn't matter if it does, like you're doing the light elliptical work. Yep. Um, and when is it? So I don't have to put it beforehand. And then beforehand, 
it's a single a single and a squat going to hurt me or a couple singles? No, not at all. Yeah. You know, I'm that way. I think that that's a good way of conceptualizing it is separating the practice from the volume work. Yeah. That's awesome. Great. Well, you know, it's a good little takeaway for the listeners there and um, they can sort of have a got programming their own weeks for that kind of training. Um, and I guess lastly, to touch on that nutritional side of this whole thing, um, I have been, you know, looking into this a little more through um, some of the stuff that um, Dr. Mike Zordos has done within the mass research review, which has been phenomenal. But he, he states a little bit, um, he states one of the things about nutrition in the sense that sufficient calories greatly diminishes the interference effect. Mm-hmm. So when we look at, you know, nutrition for someone who's doing concurrent training, would would you say like a, a surplus would be optimal for that or maybe just maintenance intake for them? Yeah, I mean, it probably, I think there, there's a difference between the practical and the theoretical. I think theoretically maintenance should be fine, but practically you have to realize that when you start doing the kind of training schedule we're talking about, maintenance is a lot more than you're currently eating. You know, it's going it, to, it sometimes can be a chore to put down. Like if you're training for a half marathon and resistance training four days a week, you might be having to increase your caloric intake by like a thousand, mm. you know, and that is a significant lifestyle change in many cases for a lot of people. And if you're eating a lot of like, quote unquote, like fitness based foods, you know, like, like you're, you're a vegetarian, right, Jackson? Yeah. Vegan. Yeah. Yeah. So you're vegan. Excuse yeah. me. So that's, there's not a whole lot of like calorie bombs for vegans. You know, you end up finding yourself like really tired of legumes, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. We just end up scooping peanut butter and trying to get those calories off. You know? Exactly. <laughs> so I, I think um, I think people do need to realize that uh, depending on their their food preferences, that can be a, a, a relatively challenging thing to do. You're, what you'll probably find is you lose a little bit of weight. And um, that's something you... Unless that's your part of your goal, yeah. Which I think we are getting to the territory of having too many goals. Like I want to run a marathon, <laughs> I want to lose weight, and I want to yeah. get stronger, and I want to get bigger. Yeah. Um, if you're a rank novice and you're really motivated by doing things, not a rank novice. If you're very early in your fitness kind of experience, all those things will happen at the same time. You know, mm-hmm. like running will make you a stronger squatter if you've never squatted before. Um, but I think after we're we're talking about like being in the gym even for six months, uh, seriously you probably need to kind of pick your spots a little more than that. So yeah. I would advise um, that you probably want to try to get yourself into at least so you're not losing weight. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's a, it's a kind of a, a good point to, I guess, finish this one on the, in the idea that you, even though you're doing concurrent training, you probably still want to have like a singular goal. Um, so you're still prioritizing one thing. And if you're trying to throw in like fat loss, like you just said, as well as an endurance adaptation, as well as a muscular adaptation. It's like, oh, come on, let's just focus on one thing at a time here. Because, mm. yeah, that generally is the case with a lot of people who are new to the the fitness game and just starting out on their fitness journey. It's like, okay, I want to do this, this, and this, this all at the same time. And then you have to kind of be like, okay, cool. Let's be a little bit, little bit more realistic here. Let's try and prioritize one thing at a time and kind of um, like we've just been discussing is, yeah, maybe let's work towards that half marathon, nail that. And then after that, we can focus on your fat loss phase or vice versa, you know? Um, so still having that, I guess that priority there, um, coming back to the nutrition thing, I've definitely noticed that for myself, hunger definitely has gone up for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and it's a case of actually listening to that and implementing more intake and not just going, Oh, you know, I need, I need to eat the same as I was before because no, my energy output is way higher. I mean, like the, the amount of energy you're going to be, 
burning from a 10k run is, is quite substantial so um it's actually yeah listen to those cues and acting on them to ensure that you you can perform yeah only other thing i would i would, I would add to that is um and, and sometimes you're going to have someone who is uh, quite high in body weight when they first come to fitness and they may be interested in running and they also may be interested in lifting um and they may also the strong motivator for them is also getting leaner and i think in those cases it's ironic and it's a tough sell to the person, but not focusing on the the fat loss, but instead of just ingraining good nutritional habits that support performance um, and not necessarily like, like we got to eat enough to, so you don't lose weight. I think that, that you can leave that out is just get them to eat more nutritious foods, more focus on carbohydrates and protein for recovery and fueling um, and implement more fruits, more vegetables, um, more lean proteins, and then get them to do the work to be able to run the 10k or the mm. half marathon or whatever and also to get stronger and to improve their form in the weight room and in most cases you will see that weight loss will happen and because they are new to the gym they're going to get stronger they're going to build muscle they're going to lose fat and they're going to get faster or or more more endurance so i think um some of what we were what we were just talking about is much more applicable to when someone is like their fat loss phase is a male trying to drop from, you know, 19% to 15% or not someone who is coming in, who is, uh, trying to make a significant lifestyle change in their high, higher in body fat than they've wanted to be for years. And they're new to the gym. So I do think there's a, there's a distinction there of, of, of who we're talking yeah, to. Yeah, totally. One thing that, um, I, I think the listeners would be interested in, and I, I didn't actually cover it earlier in the episode is your own experiences mm-hmm. with, you know, somewhat concurrent training, I guess not, not so much endurance based, but, you know, actually competed in multiple different sports in a year. Did you want to quickly run over that for listeners? Cause I think I'd love to hear it. Sure. It's not actually a uh, concurrent training. It's like a weightlifting ADD. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but structured, but structured. Yeah. Anything with a barbell. Give yeah, it exactly. So, um, a goal I had in 2020, which I, I mostly succeeded in, uh, yeah. COVID caused some issues with it was to compete in three barbell sport events, um, uh, barbell, maybe three strength sport events yeah. in the same year. So I was gearing up and I actually was planning on doing a uh, strongman competition, Auckland strongman competition with Omar Isaf coming out. Oh, wow. Uh, but obviously COVID got far worse than we had antici- anticipated and that competition got canceled and then travel got canceled yeah. borders got canceled yeah, yeah, yeah um seeing other humans within <laughs> one meter got canceled especially in canada but definitely to some degree in in uh in new zealand yeah so um i was training for weightlifting i was training for strongman i was training for powerlifting and that essentially meant that i had this rotating focus on like 10 movements. Mm. So initially this started with, okay, what are the events that I need to train for, for Auckland strongman? Um, and then I've got snatch clean and jerk, and then I've got squat bench and deadlift. Right. Um, so that same tool I talked about earlier of, okay, what's the minimum amount I need to maintain a movement became really salient, uh, and, and understanding that and learning it. And it was also a different answer for each of the different sports. So strongman, super new to me, um, weightlifting, uh, not as new, but intermittently new. I had a nice little stint in 2012, 2014, 2013, basically two years, yeah. um, back in the day. And then I came back to it and I've dabbled here and there cause I just really liked the movements. Right. But powerlifting I've done continuously since I started lifting in 04. Yeah. So 
the the dosage I need to improve on weightlifting, there's a very little difference between maintaining and, and progressing. Um, they are basically the same for for a strongman. Each time I do it, I'm like, oh, I figured something out. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and for for powerlifting, it's I, I'm quite aware of how much work I need to do with what frequency and what volume to to make steady progress there. Um, and it's a lot more than what I need to maintain. So juggling those things was an interesting process. Um, and I was very fortunate. I was able to compete. Everything kind of got backloaded, basically. Uh, I was able to compete in a powerlifting meet in August, like right before the lockdown we had. Right. Uh, which then qualified me to compete in Masters Nationals in weightlifting, which I did in October. And then I was able to sneak into the last powerlifting competition um, that was on the, the Auckland Powerlifting Association scheduled Auckland Cup in November. And I only had six weeks to prep for that wow. after uh, weightlifting nationals. Yeah. And I was able to put up a 600 total, which was awesome. within 17 kilos of my best ever at that time, uh, which was really cool um, by mainly having this very like specific focus. Um, and then finally in December, I jumped into, uh, it wasn't a strongman competition, but it was put on by the strongman organization. They have what's called the, the backyard Highland games. Oh, cool. So I did a Highland games and, and, and barely got to train for it at all. So I pretty <laughs> much rocked up and said, let's see what, what I can do with this. Let's but I throw was, a kilt on and exactly. get a <laughs> and I did. I did wear a kilt and I tried to respect the tradition. Love it. Um, but yeah, for most of the, the year, uh, until we went into significant lockdown. And so the end of 2019, early 2020 through, you know, February and March, I was training all of the, the stuff at the same time. And then it became, you know, training at home. I had access to like 90 kilos. So I was doing like, all right, well, let's focus on weightlifting and general fitness because the gyms are closed. And that yeah. was during the first lockdown. Uh, and then we were able to get a home, very fortunate, in, in August, right around the same time as the second lockdown. And then I could start training from home. But I don't have strongman equipment at home. So it was yeah. very much like weightlifting and powerlifting. Um, so it was uh, it was an interesting it – was, it was not exactly the original um, outcome that I was hoping for because, you know, global pandemic. Um, but it certainly uh, was a really good experience for me because I did learn – um, like what do I need to improve these skills? And I started to look at them much more like skills. Yeah. Um, and I also got to see, I noticed how I would shrink a little bit on certain muscle groups when I was doing weightlifting because of the right. amount of time you have to dedicate to it. And you know, like a, two reps on a clean and jerk takes as long as doing like six squats. <laughs> yeah. Right. So yeah. there's very little like time under tension. And, and a, much, a lot of those movements are, you, you know, then accelerating the bar off you and getting to position and catch it. That's right. So on a rep by rep basis, weightlifting isn't really super efficient for hypertrophy. Right. You know, so, but it is something that requires a lot of skill and a lot of attention. So yeah. I found like, oh, maintaining my muscle mass is a lot harder doing weightlifting uh, than it is during powerlifting. I'm uh, not strong enough to really be, <laughs> to be good enough weightlifting to where it actually would make me grow. I'm right. Like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm weightlifting, yeah, but I'm shrinking. Which yeah, is, yeah. <laughs> which is a funny thing. Like if you if you think if you have a blank slate and you just come into weightlifting, you're going to grow. You're going to grow. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if you've been bodybuilding for for 15 years and powerlifting for 15 years and you start doing weightlifting and you're bad at it, you're going to shrink. <laughs> so yeah. so figuring out where yeah. and how much I could sneak in uh, accessories and yeah. ways that didn't actually. Um, you know, compromise things. And there, this isn't an interference effect, but, uh, you at least, well, I'll say, I'll say I, as a turning 38 in a couple days, um, male who doesn't have great flexibility, I really have to think about what movements I do, what ranges of motion I use and how much time and I dedicate to flexibility work. Right. Because, you know, 
like everyone hates on flexibility. Like just do more of the movement and it'll make you more flexible at it. Right. What if I can't do the movement? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, do you want me to spend 15 minutes doing bad snatches to try to get into position to do a good thing? Like, <laughs> yeah. That's not exactly great priming. That's like, right. I could just stretch my arm. Yes. You know? So anyway, um, I had to think about a lot of things, flexibility, mobility. Yeah, so much um, goes into it. And, you know, like, do I want my biceps sore the day before I have to do snatches? That's not great for positioning, et cetera. So, yeah. Uh, such a, I mean, such a um, intricate way to program, like trying to, you know, do, but I think probably for yourself, it's quite enjoyable <laughs> because it's, you that know, was the, yeah. So yeah, it, it, it's, it's training for, for powerlifting and bodybuilding at the same time is not hard. Yeah. In my opinion, it, like it just, it just requires a little bit of intelligent planning. And you, I think you lose very little mm. in terms of what you could, achieve at a high level. And when you look at some of the, uh, the dual sport athletes who are out there, there are a number of very good bodybuilders who have also competed in powerlifting. They're not necessarily world champions. Yeah. Um, but there are some who are quite good at both. Yeah. And that's because they, they have similar characteristics and it's just a matter of choosing some movements and then periodization a little bit and having the time to do your accessories. Uh, and you can look at plenty of powerlifters who, you know, if they dieted would, would do really well on stage. Yeah. Um, but you don't see adding even more into the mix. You know, that, that becomes increasingly challenging. Yeah. So to me, the goal was something that was an intellectual challenge. It was a, it was, I like problem solving. Yeah. So, uh, and I also just like lifting. So that was something that I really enjoyed about 2020. It gave me a unique goal um, while I was unable to train in any kind of optimal way anyway. So putting a challenge in front of myself well, was a nice way to do that. So currently I'm a lot more interested and focused on powerlifting, but I have that luxury. I have that privilege because I can train at home and there's yeah. gyms open and yeah. there's powerlifting meets happening. Um, but I thought it was uh, a good way to focus the, and create some agency and to have something to do during, during the, the lockdown. So we've all figured out ways to get around that. That's so. awesome. Yeah, man. So landing this one, what's on the agenda for this year then? Like, is, is there another goal in mind for training? Yeah, so I just competed in uh, Auckland Champs powerlifting and totaled 620. Got a lifetime Epic. PB on deadlift. I pulled 260. Um, and I had to – I didn't have to. I sandbagged the squat a little bit so we weren't sure how my adductor was going. I had a little bit of an issue like 12 days out, but it was totally fine. And I had to hold back on bench because I got a minor pec strain. Um, so – I am making sure that I am doing the things necessary that I think will hopefully reduce the chance of random strains, which I did not see coming. I right. didn't have any indication of like, it wasn't one of those things like I'm beat up, I'm beat up, I'm beat up. Ah, yeah, I should have saw yeah, that coming. Yeah, 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 totally. It was more like, I feel great. Oh, I just strained my hammy. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Which is, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's not the way I like to get hurt. I like I to, I like to be able to blame myself. Like I, <laughs> yes. I did X and Y happened. Yeah. It's math. So what do you blame in this situation? I, I honestly, shit happens. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can think of some things in retrospect now, you know, with hindsight being 2020, where maybe I could, you know, keep in more variety as I get closer to comp. So not be too hyper specific in the last mesocycle. Interesting. Um, where maybe I could do some like eccentric sumo RDLs to try to build a little more resilience to, to muscle damage. Um, and maybe slow down the, uh, the progression and load, like just kind of extend it. Um, yep. not necessarily that I'm like, oh, I'll get too strong too fast, but just like, instead of like, when do I start doing singles at eight RPE? I yep. could start that earlier at a, at a seven kind of I thing. See. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. Um, so th those are the things that I'm going to try to implement in this next buildup. But you know, if, if I hadn't held back on bench, 
uh, and assuming it wouldn't tear the peck off the bone fully, uh, I think I probably had another 10 to 15 kilos in there. Yeah. So I felt yeah. like I, like on a good day, yeah, there was thanks. a 640 total in me. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah. So I'm going to, I've got 18 weeks until nationals. Um, and we'll see how that goes. So Amazing. right now I'm pretty focused on powerlifting cause awesome. I'm making progress and enjoying it. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, um, it's been great having you out again, Eric. I think we covered this one pretty well and, uh, I think the listeners will have something to take away and play with. Um, but yeah, are we, uh, going to get into a lift then? I actually have to get to AUT, but I'm so going to get into a lift then. So you get, you get into a lift, <laughs> I will go talk to people about learning and studying lifting. Fantastic. That's what you do every day, man. That's right. Just, uh, all natural for you. Mm. Thanks so much, man. We'll see, uh, we'll, we'll do it again sometime. Thank you for having me. Always cool. a pleasure. Okay, guys, so there we go. A pretty heavy one, a lot of information. As always, Eric Helms brings the knowledge. I guess if I was to try and summarize this huge in-depth episode, I mean, it's probably well worth going back and having another listen at some stage. If this kind of stuff uh, interests you, I definitely will myself. Uh, But it comes down to prioritizing what is actually the end goal for you, knowing that we likely can't optimize everything at the same time. We need to prioritize what we need right now to reach the end goal. So looking at the macro cycle of your year of training, deciding, okay, where are the events throughout the year that I need to kind of peak for, whether it's in a endurance event like a marathon, uh, like myself, uh, or whether you're trying to peak for a, a sporting competition or a CrossFit comp or, you know, something that you're going to have to, uh, kind of stray away from your usual gym-based programming and do something a little bit different. Prioritizing where those events are and then working back from there. Deciding how you're going to structure your week so that you can mitigate fatigue as much as possible and ensure that you still get quality sessions within the gym with just enough volume to maintain size and with enough intensity to maintain strength. And as we've heard from Eric, it doesn't actually take it that much. It's a very low amount. So guys, I hope that was enlightening for you. I hope it helped you to kind of put some things in perspective and conceptualize some ideas for you of how you can structure concurrent training and hopefully will allow you to enjoy all aspects of training and as we talked about uh, physical culture, all aspects of physical culture and you know, instead of being stuck in certain fitness camps, I'm a bodybuilder, I'm a crossfitter, I'm a runner, we can actually start to look at fitness in a more of a holistic sense and something that we can partake in in many different facets and and just enjoy moving and what our bodies can do and the incredible beauty of the whole thing. So I'll leave it there. Go out, get a run in or a lift or do some Olympic lifting if you're inspired by Eric. Do something that's going to make you feel good but also something that's going to challenge you and help you to progress over the next year or so. As always, flick me a message if you enjoyed the episode. I'd love to see you share the story. Uh, sorry, share the episode on your stories on Instagram. It's always great to see where you're listening from. Um, and if you're interested in having a program such as what we chatted about today, written up for you, I do personalized coaching, whether it's for my full coaching, which includes nutrition and training or you just want to get a training program that's via the app we have here in the gym all exercises are listed in detail with videos sets and reps 
RPEs, everything listed for you, taking out the guesswork. Then all you need to do is jump in the link in this episode and you'll be able to jump on our website and see all of the details there. Other than that, guys, go lift up, go eat up, and we will catch you in the next episode. Thank you.